Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's reading is from Psalm 41. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, Yahweh delivers him. Yahweh protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. Yahweh sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Yahweh, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. These first few verses, it's a little hard to to know who the referent is at all these points. So blessed is the one who considers the poor. We could take that as an earthly blessing, that the Lord, that is, is blessing the one who cares for the least of these. Very much fits with what Jesus says about the judgment in Matthew chapter 25, certainly. In which case, maybe David is asking for the Lord to bless him, that as king, his role is to care for all of the people, including the poor, within God's kingdom, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. If we take it that way, it's still not entirely clear who the hymns and the he's kind of things would be moving through the rest of the paragraph. In the day of trouble, Yahweh delivers him. Who? The one who considers the poor, like David? Or the poor? Or both? And that just continues going through the text. Whereas another way to read it would be, blessed is the one who considers the poor, that the one is God himself. He is the one who considers the poor. He is the one who cares for and delivers him. In which case, the rest of the paragraph is simple. It all refers to God's provision and his care for his people, for poor, miserable sinners like us. So if we go back to the first way, if this is David, for example, considering the poor, it could be a prayer for the Lord to care for those who care for the poor, which by extension would allow them to continue to care for the poor. 
that God would protect him, keep him alive so that he may continue to care for and provide for the poor man among him. God will sustain him even on his sickbed, keeping him alive again, restoring his health, that he may serve others. But as we transition into the second paragraph, that kind of confusion certainly goes away with this text. As for me, I said, O Yahweh, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. I've already said it. We are poor, miserable sinners. That is a confession that you and I are used to making as we gather in the Lord's house. And it's a good family conversation for this day. When we confess our sins, as David here has done, how does God respond? It's not the response that Judas will hear from the the chief priest and the other priests when he confesses his sin of betraying Jesus Christ, at which point they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. No, it is the absolution that we hear. Almighty God, in his mercy, has given his Son to die for you and for his sake forgives you of all your sins. As a called and ordained servant of Christ and by his authority, I therefore forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the Lord's response to us and he makes it, he makes it ours, he makes it certain, he makes it sure by putting it in the lips of his servants pastors of our congregations, that we may hear that word whenever the devil assails us, whenever the devil takes our sin and seeks to hold it against us and say that Christ can't possibly forgive you this time, we can hear that reassurance. For that forgiveness comes from Christ himself. He bled and died on the cross to win it, to earn it for you. And he has. There's no reason for the Lord to go back on it now. He's already paid the price. It is yours. Thanks be to God. David's going to spend several verses here talking about the hatred of his enemies, that they long to see him fall. They long to see him die. That's in verse 5. When will he die and his name perish? The Philistines certainly fit that picture. He was at war with them quite a bit. But also the close friend of verse 9. We'll come back to that idea in a moment here. When one comes to see me, he utters empty words, so he flatters the king in his presence, but all the while he's actually seeking faults to tear down his reputation among the people, or weaknesses to possibly and potentially attack. His heart gathers iniquity. He is not there for good purpose. He is there to seek to destroy and harm. And so he goes out and he tells it abroad. Again, the reputation, destruction, the slander, but also uh, if he's a spy, telling the enemy who might then come to harm. This is contrary. I mean, we see with David's son, Solomon, with all of his wisdom, the queen of the south is going to come and she's going to visit him and she's not seeking to tear him down. There might be a little pridefulness there. I mean, she she comes admitting that she would like to hear of his great wisdom directly. She's heard of it from others. She wants to hear it for herself. So maybe there's a part of her that's wishing it's false so that she can claim to be better, better than him. But it seems genuine and earnest, and she definitely leaves that way. 
having been just shocked by how greatly blessed with wisdom King Solomon was. So that's the opposite of this picture here where somebody is coming emptily into the court. That there are those who come faithfully into the court. And so all who hate David whisper together about him. So plotting, perhaps, or again gossip to destroy his reputation. They imagine the worst for me. So they they are plotting. They are seeking his downfall. Or at the very least, again, hoping for it. Verse 5. So verse 8, they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Verses 5 and 6 come to mind, certainly, of their plotting for his destruction, but also verse 3, that whole first paragraph, confusing as it was. Is David the one here who's ill? We don't always know when David's psalms are written. Is this written during a time where he is sick? And so his enemies think that he is going to die from this illness. And yet he prays in verse 10 that the Lord would raise him up, that he can fight back. Verse 9 in between there first, though. My close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. A likely referent for this would be to a royal counselor by the name of Ahithophel. You can find him in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and again in chapter 17. He was one of David's counselors, and yet when Absalom, the son of David, steals the throne from his father, and David is kind of exiled for a little while, Ahithophel continues on as a royal counselor, but not to the true king of Israel, but now to Absalom, betraying his king. Jesus Christ himself is going to use this phrase in reference to Judas Iscariot, on Monday, Thursday, in the account in John chapter 13, verse 19, as Judas, who has shared the bread, even dipped it in the bowl with Jesus, has yet lifted it up against him. Lifted his heel. There's in English a bit of a pun there, as you can talk about the heel of a loaf of bread, perhaps. I don't know that they would use that kind of language in that time because, well, they didn't use loaves of bread the way we do unleavened bread doesn't quite have that shape you would have an edge, sure but you wouldn't necessarily have a a tall piece that was all edge anyway, um, I think instead the referent here for us to consider is Genesis 3.15 where the serpent will strike at Jesus' heel but Jesus will crush his head so he has lifted his heel against me to harm me, to attack and yet Jesus Even though betrayed and crucified, Jesus rises from that death on Easter morn. So, David prays for deliverance, but also for the opportunity to fight back. It's a bit of an oddity, but he does request God give him that chance. Normally we would say vengeance belongs to the Lord, leave it to him, but we do see this prayer from King David. So we're Restore him to his throne, perhaps, if this is written in Absalom's time. By this I know that you delight in me, 
not far off from the words of that song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How do we know? Romans 5 also covers that. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But how does David know? My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Even though that's future tense, which is kind of fascinating to think about. He knows now. David knows in that moment, whatever darkness he's facing, again, sounds like could be the rebellion of Absalom. He knows in the present moment, because of the future tense event, that his enemy won't win. And again, that's just incredibly fascinating. The hope and the confidence, the trust that he has. This certainly connects to our Christian faith today and to even what we would say is the theme of the book of Revelation, that even though the enemy is dark, even though suffering happens in the church and persecution, Jesus Christ wins. In fact, Jesus Christ has already won. The enemy of sin, death, and the devil have no power over you. They've already been defeated. They've already been crushed by Christ on the cross and by his resurrection from the tomb. They're done. And so in this present moment, even though that's a future tense reality, as we long for paradise, in the present moment, we have that hope already now. We know that God delights in us because our enemy of sin, death, and the devil will not triumph over us. Very fitting. So you could have that family conversation as you read verse 11. How is this also true for us? Verse 12. You have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. That is something that we would attribute to the work of the Lord directly and only. And it's not by my, my faithfulness that the Lord has saved me. He has saved me, and because of his great salvation, he has also given me faithfulness. He has given me faith, and he equips me to be faithful. And as the word integrity would play out here then it is our our keeping of his command not as a legalistic we must do this thing to be saved kind of a statement but he is already he's upholding see that and so we walk in that faith that he has given but it's because of his upholding that he has set us in his presence forever paradise life that never ends So then a note of praise. Blessed be Yahweh. Blessed from this perspective would be thanksgiving. We give thanks to God, who is the God of Israel, so of his Old Testament people there. Uh, But the book of Romans, maybe around chapter 9, will refer to us as the children of Abraham by the promise, not by blood. Our blood, man's blood, by the blood of Christ. So we are the nation of Israel now in a spiritual sense. Thanks be to God from everlasting to everlasting, forever. Forevermore. Amen and amen. Amen meaning truly. So this word is true. God is faithful. Thanks be to God.